When my wife, Karen, and I lived in Dubai about seven or eight years ago, we hosted a Bible study in our home. And one evening, one of the regular attendees brought an acquaintance he had met, who seemed interested in learning more about Christianity and what Christians believe. This man, this young man, was originally from India. He and I began meeting up on a semi-regular basis to discuss the Bible, Jesus, and religion in general. It didn't take long, however, to recognize that he was less interested in genuinely learning about Christianity than he was in sharing with me his beliefs of a higher power and how he had decided the world worked. As he expounded with confidence on his philosophy, it became clear that the God of this young man, the God that this young man had created in his mind, was a God who aligned perfectly with how he had decided he wanted to live his life. He had managed to delude himself into fabricating without proof or evidence, and I would argue, in contrast to a mountain of evidence that the true God of the universe has given us, he had managed to fabricate a deity that affirmed every decision and action this young man had taken. So imagine inventing and worshiping a God who affirmed everything you did was right and nothing you did was wrong. Well, in many ways, that's precisely what the false teachers in our passage have done today. So if you have your Bibles with me, as Jonathan read, please turn again to 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to begin in the second half of that verse. So that's 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10b. Now, as you turn there, let's, let me give you a quick recap of Peter's second letter to this point. Uh, Peter was one of Jesus' apostles, and it's believed that he wrote this letter to Christians from Rome close to the end of his life, right before he was persecuted and martyred by the Roman Emperor Nero. So, Peter's purpose in the whole letter is to remind churches to continue to strive to be holy, to live lives that are pleasing to God. Or as Martin put it last week, to live virtuous lives. And as we've seen over the past several weeks, he does this in chapter 1 by encouraging Christians that through the grace of Jesus Christ, God has given them all they need to not only live godly, virtuous lives, but also to withstand the onslaught of attacks and corruption of the world that is bound to come. It's actually a very positive and inspiring message. As the letter continues, however, we see Peter's tone change dramatically in chapter 2 to one of warning and caution. If chapter 1 is meant to bolster our confidence that God has called us to be partakers of his divine nature, as we see in chapter 1, verse 4, then chapter 2 is meant to be a loud, flagrant alarm of warning against being seduced by those who have denied the truth about Jesus Christ and replaced it with their own heretical, that is, with their own destructively wrong teaching about God. All as a cautionary tale and a cautionary exhortation of what not to do. Now, as theologian John Piper puts it, chapter 2 intends to do in a negative way what chapter 1 aims to do in a positive way. Namely, make us earnest 
about the business of confirming our call and election by God. Now, as we heard from Martin last week, Peter begins chapter 2 by calling attention to these false teachers who denied that Jesus would return, and by showing that their path, while seemingly attractive, actually leads to destruction. In our passage today, it's as if Peter now zooms in further to expand upon the, special, the specific characteristics of these false teachers and what exactly it is that they do that makes them so dangerous. And as we'll see next week, God willing, Peter concludes chapter 2 by expounding on the grim fate of these false teachers, as well as any who are fortunate enough to follow in their apostasy, that is, in their falling away from the true faith. But now, let's look again at how Peter details the characteristics of these false teachers. I'm going to read the passage again, because I want you to note that there's not a lot of subtlety here. We are meant to grasp the full weight and consequence of their sin. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. While they feast with you, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, son of Baor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. This is a sobering read. <coughs> This description should shock and grieve us. Now, we all know that God's word is instructive. And I believe that Peter's, Peter offers these descriptions to not only help us identify false teachers, but also to instruct us as to what sort of behavior the opposite of these descriptions that we Christians are to adopt to live those lives worthy of our calling by God. And as we see, these descriptions seem to come down to the love of power, of sex, and of money. So that's our outline for today. Three postures we are called to adopt that repudiate the actions of these false teachers and affirm our calling as Christians. So first, we're called to shun pride and cultivate humility. Second, we're called to flee from sexual sin and run to sexual purity. And third, we're called to abandon greed and, and embrace lavish Christian generosity. So for those night takers, I'm going to do it again. Shun pride and cultivate humility, number one. Number two, flee from sexual sin and run to sexual purity. And number three, abandon greed and embrace lavish Christian generosity. So first, we're called to shun pride 
cultivate humility. Peter begins by describing the false teachers as bold and willful in their apostasy. So this is not really making a mistake. No, this, this is on purpose. It's deliberate and intentional. They know exactly what they are doing. So, but to what apostasy is referring? Well, we see it in the phrase directly before it, at the beginning of verse 10. It says, the lust of divine passion and despising authority. Further down, we see that Peter in verse 12 says that these false teachers blaspheme about matters on which they are ignorant. And they do so like irrational animals or like creatures of instinct. So this means that although these actions are intentional, they're not really done thoughtfully or, or rationally. And I wonder, do you know anyone like that? Maybe you know someone on social media or television who's, no matter the latest news story or controversially suddenly fancies himself or herself as an expert on the subject, be it epidemiology or foreign policy, someone who is always confident, but rarely right, someone whose approach seems to be to supplement his or her lack of knowledge with boldness. Well, that, that's pride, isn't it? And it's one of the most dangerous, insidious, and destructive sins that there is. It's not something with which to be trifled or something in which to dabble, but yet that's exactly what these false teachers do. It says they blaspheme the glorious ones in verse 10. Now, I have to tell you, scholars actually disagree on what this means. We know that to blaspheme something is to show irreverence and disrespect for it, but some say it's a reference to the glories of God in Christ, specifically Christ's second coming, which these false teachers deny. But most scholars, however, believe glorious one actually refers to evil spiritual beings. So Peter is likely explaining that these false teachers were dismissive, that evil forces were aligned against them. Either that and or they, they were overly confident in their ability to, to somehow resist this demonic spiritual warfare. But either way, in either meaning, I think what's most important here is that we again see it's the false teacher's prideful arrogance that allows them to make such brash and bold proclamation. And Peter emphasizes this because according to him, even angels who are greater in might and power than these men, they recognize that it's not their place to pass judgment on them. That, that role is reserved solely for God. Yet these false teachers, they have the audacity to put themselves in the place of the Lord. They want to rule on the throne. They want They're despising of authority that we mentioned, from church leaders to apostles like Paul. It leads them to eventually despise the authority of Christ himself, as we heard last week. And we see at the end of verse 12 where this pride will ultimately lead them, lead them, their destruction. And as I said, we'll hear about more about that next week, God willing. Now, in contrast, how are true Christians supposed to respond to God? Well, rather than despising authority, we're actually called to submit, humbly to authority. We're to actually be like those angels who recognize that their proper recognize their proper place in reference to the holy God of the universe. But but how do we do that practically? Like particularly in the life of the church. 
Well, one way to do that is to trust the elders that the Lord has placed in leadership over this church. These men that we as the congregation have affirmed as shepherds to lead our flock. I wonder, have you ever thought of the elders as a gift to Westlake Lausanne from Jesus? They are. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 say, He gave shepherds to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, his church. And I think what that means is that we're called to then approach the elders in a very humble way. That doesn't mean we can't disagree, but it means that we need to be able to do so in a way that doesn't demonstrate the same boldness and brashness and, and, and confidence of being right that we see here. So let's praise God for the kindness he has shown us in providing us here at Westlake Lausanne with such loving, caring leadership. But it is also with humility that our elders are called to exercise that authority that God has given them. So we see in, in, first, in, in Titus chapter 1, verse 7, that one of the qualifications for an elder, an, an overseer, a, a shepherd, is that he not be arrogant, but rather self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, says an elder must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Doesn't that sound almost exactly how Peter's describing these false teachers? Now, does that mean the elders and their decisions are infallible and can never be questioned? Are we simply to blindly affirm everything they say and do? Certainly not. And in fact, I imagine these men would be the first to humbly admit that they are far from perfect. So in fact, that's actually why our church is led by the elders, but ruled by us, the congregation. We, as the flock, regularly get together to make major decisions about the life and direction of the church. And it's also the reason why there's a plurality of elders, and not just one single person leading the church. This entire structure helps protect the flock by making it very hard for a lone, prideful, arrogant, false teacher to lead us all astray. As the Apostle Paul notes in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we, the congregation, actually have the duty and responsibility, out of love, to fire any pastor who does not preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ found in the Bible. And I know that each and every elder of this church would humbly ask this body of believers to do just that to each of them if they stray from God's word. So we should regularly pray for our elders, thanking them, thanking God for them, praying they would continue to serve with humility, and asking God to raise up more godly men from within our church to help lead our flock. Another way we can humbly submit to authority is simply through our regular lives together as a church, a body of believers who have covenanted together to care for one another. As we talked about recently in our church retreat, one of the ways we continue to grow in our understanding and knowledge of God is through discipling relationships within the church. Now, a good definition of discipling is deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. Let me say that again. Discipling is deliberately doing spiritual good to someone 
so that he or she will be more like Christ. This is men within the church meeting up with other men and women with other women, not just to grow their friendships, but to specifically share each other's lives with helping one another follow Christ more. You see, as we learn more about God through studying his word and sharing our lives together, we learn more about our sin and his holiness. We learn, and in doing this, we help kill pride and grow humility. So similarly, this church service together here this morning and, and each Sunday morning that we gather is, as my former pastor Mark Dever uh, put it, a coordinated attack on the fortress of our pride. So what do we do? We, we come together and we gather to offer prayers to God's greatness and confess our failings. We sing songs that magnify Him, not us. We hear messages like this one that I'm giving right now that help us better interpret and understand God's call for our lives. Brothers and sisters, Sunday mornings are for killing pride. Week in and week out. And we should make every effort to be here regularly, carefully heeding the the words of the author of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 25, to not neglect to meet together. So, so these are kind of a few ways, I think, that we can shun pride and cultivate humility. But number two, a second way we repudiate the characteristics of these false teachers is we must flee from sexual sin and run to sexual purity. Let's look again at verses 13 and 14. They counted pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. Now, another way to translate revel here is to carouse, to party, to live it up. Peter is saying that these teachers have no shame. They eagerly and unashamedly practice their sexual sin openly in public, with no longer even the pretext of hiding in the privacy of darkness. They take pride, there's that word again, in their deceptions. All the while, they are sharing meals with true believers. Maybe even the Lord's Supper or communion, which we often take together here, although not today. Their eyes are full of adultery. What's that mean? Well, it means they sexualize all they see. They see potential conquests everywhere. Sensual thoughts monopolize their minds, and they can't get enough. They're obsessed. You see, sexual sin is devious and it's sneaky. It very rarely just appears out of nowhere. No, instead, it normally starts with something small, maybe a, a mere flirtation or, or a small indulgence. But I think we see here is that sexual sin, like all sin, never truly satisfies. It's like it's like water that never quenches your thirst, so you keep drinking more and more. Just just one more click. Just just one more glance. One more encounter. The pattern that sin uses to seduce is painfully obvious. First you're tempted. Then you give in a little. Then you give in a little more. And soon you completely fall out. Now it's doubtful these false teachers began by sitting out in the open. No. What's more likely is that they started small and they became further and further ensnared as their sins never truly delivered on what they promised. And did you catch that final part? That final part upon whom 
these teachers most readily pray? Whom they target? Paul says it is the unsteady souls. It's the weak Christians they seduce, not the strong. Like lions or wolves, they go after the weakest among the flock. This is why Peter calls us to be established in the truths about God in chapter 1, verse 12, to, to inoculate us and protect us from these seductions. So this means diligently studying God's word and applying it to our lives. This means likewise raising our children, often the most vulnerable, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You see, these false teachers, they first fell and then looked for a theology to justify their fall. It's like that young man in Dubai. They, they seek to remain the world, remake the world in their image, not conform to God's. And how sad even today, we've seen that far too many pastors have made shipwrecks of their lives over indulgence sexual sin. But now in contrast, we true Christians are called to run headlong towards sexual purity. We're called to be pure and blameless, blameless in Christ, not the blots and blemishes that Peter calls these men. Beloved, when we declare to a watching world that we are followers of Christ, we are saying that people can see aspects of him in how we live our lives. And when we engage in sexual sin, we and our actions are lying about who God is. Sex and sexual desire are gifts from God, and they are actually good things. But they are meant to be only enjoyed within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. However, in this fallen world, sexual desire has become twisted and contorted. As one pastor put it, Promiscuity has reduced God's great gift to a trifle. Now maybe you're here and you feel immune to sexual temptation. Or maybe you're here and you could be one of those unsteady souls and you regularly feel the strong pull of sexual sin. Or maybe you're here and you've already been ensnared. <coughs> Regardless of where you find yourself today, we all must fight for sexual purity. Sin, particularly sexual sin, thrives in darkness. It grows when hidden to the point where it corrupts so much and leads so far astray that it can then survive openly, brazenly, out in the daylight, as with these false teachers. But transparency and confession are like sin disinfectants. They shine a bright light into the dark corners of sin, and they burn it away. So brothers and sisters, make sure there are others who know you and your struggles with sin, to whom you have given permission to ask you lovingly difficult questions about your heart and your desires, and to confront you with any sinful behavior to which you may be blind. Make sure you're confessing these sins and your struggles, both to God and to others whom you trust, whom you know, will walk alongside you in pointing you back to the purity to which God calls each of us. And as a church, we must continue to teach on God's good purposes for marriage and for courtship. This church community is where we protect and guard this good gift from God, regardless of what the world says it is.
So we must flee from sexual sin and run to sexual purity. Third and finally, we must abandon greed and embrace lavish Christian generosity. Again, we turn to verses 14 and 16. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, son of Baor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So what happens when you train for something? Let's say you're trained to run a marathon, or your job requires a certain number of training hours to be certified. Well, when you train, you're putting in a significant amount of time and effort uh, towards a goal, right? You're doing the work to hone and improve yourself for a particular purpose. Well, Peter here says that these false teachers have trained their hearts for greed. That means they've worked at becoming more greedy. They're, they're committed to it. They're driven to become experts in greed. It's like it's their raison d'etre, their, their reason for being. And Peter likens these men to Balaam, the son of Balaam. Now, you may remember the Old Testament story of Balaam. We, we don't have time to read it now, but it might be a good idea later today or this week to go back and read this story in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 24. But in short, Balaam was a prophet who took money to curse people. Didn't have principles, he was for sale. Like a mercenary, his allegiances and skills went to whomever paid him the most. And at one point, the king of Moab wanted to pay Balaam to curse God's people, the Israelites. And Balaam was keen to do the job. However, God stood in opposition to this and sent an angel of the Lord to stand in Balaam's way as he was riding his donkey to go conclude the deal. Balaam was so stubbornly committed to his greed that the Lord finally had to open the mouth of the donkey to speak in order to restrain Balaam's madness, as Peter says. Now, can you imagine? Even a donkey, not generally considered to be the most intelligent of animals, could see Balaam's foolishness. But, but Balaam himself could not. He was blinded by his greed. And, and what was Peter's description again of the false teachers back in verse 10? Irrational animals? That's so true. They're even less insightful and discerning than this donkey. So you see, much like sexual sin, the promise of, of more and more money never, never actually delivers. And in some ways, it's even more subtle in its temptations. Now, you may believe you have very valid, justifiable reasons why you want more money. Maybe it's to help save your university or retirement, or maybe it's simply to feel that sense of oh, financial security. Now, these may be good motives, or they may be self-justified sins and self-justified greed. But how, how do you know the difference? Well, the answer depends on the posture of your heart. The problem arises when you put your faith and trust in money and what you think it will get you, financial security, respect, influence, more than you do in God. Now many of you here are well acquainted with the four-year-old, soon-to-be-five-year-old force of nature that is my son, Robbie. During our family devotionals in the evening, one of the areas that Karen and I work on with Robbie 
is memorization of this book called The New City Catechism for Kids. And for those who are not familiar, it's a small book of questions and answers that are aimed at helping children learn the core doctrines of our Christian faith. And over the past few weeks, we've been working on question number 17 with Robbie. What is idolatry? The answer is simple. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator. Let me repeat that. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator. Full stop. So simple. So simple even a child can understand it. It's so difficult for many of us. Greed and the love of money is idolatry. And it is a clear path directly to the same apostasy practiced by these false teachers. We know that Jesus cautioned against the love of money throughout his earthly ministry. And the teachings of the Bible are overflowing in how Christians should approach wealth and possessions. Take, for example, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. I think it's a passage with which most of us may be familiar. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I think there's no more apt description of the false teachers here in 2 Peter than this. Some have wandered away from the faith. Or as Peter puts it in verse 15, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. Now, in contrast, true Christians are called to view all of life's possessions and material goods as a stewardship from the Lord, for which we will one day give an account to Him. Something that comes from Him should be used for His purposes and remains with Him long after we have departed this world. So how do we fight greed? Well, it's not by believing we can satisfy it by acquiring enough money and possessions, but rather by liberally and extravagantly using the resources God has given us for his purposes. This is the way to break any chains on our hearts that wealth may, may hold. As Christians, we're called to be givers. Now, I'm not talking just about giving money to the church, although that is part of it. I'm talking about giving in all its forms. Opening your home to Christian hospitality. Donating to the Lord's work in one of the many mission and charitable organizations we support here. Westlake Lausanne, and giving of your time and talents, not just your treasures, to advance God's kingdom. If we remember, three weeks ago, Martin preached a sermon on Giving Sunday that cast a vision for our new church building. I, I thought that was a perfect example of how to faithfully shepherd God's resources to bring Him further glory. But in fact, one thing I would add is that one of the primary reasons we're called to give so generously is that it's good for our hearts. It says something about what we value. It literally puts our money where our mouths are and helps us become, and keeps us from becoming deceived and self-justified like these false teachers. Now there's an excellent book that I would highly commend to you, particularly if you find yourself struggling with this issue. It's called Money, Possessions, and Eternity by Randy Alcorn. Now if you're interested and you can't buy it, find me, I would actually gladly purchase this book for you 
if you promise to read it, because I believe that it's a good use of God's resources. Now, in the book, Alcorn puts it perfectly. Our use of money and possessions is a decisive statement of our eternal values. What we do with our money loudly affirms which kingdom we belong to. Whenever we give of our resources to further God's kingdom, we cast a ballot for Christ and against Satan, for heaven and against hell. Whenever we use our resources selfishly and indifferently, we further Satan's goals. So as Christians, we're called to hold our possessions lightly and employ them in the service of the Lord. Therefore, we must abandon greed and embrace lavish Christian generosity. Well, we should conclude. I wonder if you're here and you're not a Christian. Just what you think of all of this. First of all, let me say you're you most welcome. As I said before, we believe that there's no better place for you to be on a Sunday morning than right here. But perhaps you're struggling to understand what's so wrong with what these false teachers are doing. Maybe you believe that being bold and having pride in oneself is a, it's a good thing. Maybe you think that all sex between two consulting adults is perfectly fine. Maybe you see no problem with the acquisition of wealth. I have to tell you, however, that, the, that none of that is what the Bible teaches. You see, as Christians, we believe that there's a perfectly holy God who created and rules over everything. He created all of us. And yet, all of us have sinned. And we sinned against Him, seeking our way instead of His, and have fallen far short of His glory. For that, we deserve eternal punishment. But in His love, He made a way for His rebellious people to reconcile to Him. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live a life of perfect obedience that we could not, and to die the death that we deserved as a substitute for all those who would turn from their sins and put their faith and trust in Him. And we know that after three days, God raised Jesus from the dead to show that his payment was sufficient. Jesus now sits at the right hand of God the Father. And contrary to what these false teachers asserted, Jesus will come again one day to judge the living and the dead. You see, we now seek to obey God and obey what he commands and live virtuous lives, not to try to be good enough for God to forgive us, no. We know this is already impossible. Rather, it's because we are already forgiven because of what Christ has done, not us, that we now seek to live new lives in service to him. So we seek to shun pride and embrace humility because it was the God-man Jesus who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. We seek to flee from sexual sin and run to sexual purity because it was Jesus who was the spotless lamb of God slain for us. And we seek to abandon greed and embrace lavish Christian generosity because Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice to reconcile us to God. Friend, we would love to tell you more about Jesus. Please either find me, ask one of the people next to you, or simply reach out to anyone here or outside after service. This is the best news we could ever hope to share with you. So, unlike the false teachers in both Peter's Day and today, and unlike my that young man in Dubai, all of whom have oriented their God around their beliefs, we Christians are called to radically reorient our lives and our beliefs around the one who died for us, around Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray.